The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And today on my couch, we have a very passionate, dedicated woman who was a teacher in the New York City public schools and lived to tell about it. <laughs> Literally lived to tell about it. She has just written uh, a memoir that, well, I should say it just came out. She's been writing it for a while. It's called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum, a teacher's memoir. And I get a lot of um, press releases coming to my mailbox, my email box. And, um, you know, most of them are, are things, or many of them are things that I'm not really uh, that don't grab me right away. But when I saw <laughs> this um, this press release, Retired New York Teacher's Memoir Takes Readers Through 33, 33 Years in School System, I just uh, had to read more. And, um, you know, of course, of course, it's part of it is personal, but then when I started reading the book, it's <laughs> even if you've never grown up in New York... <laughs> You, uh, you still would, it's just incredibly well written, as you would expect an English teacher to do. And, but not, but it's not stuffy. Um, I don't want that to make it seem like it's stuffy. It's incredibly, it feels like you're in the room with Melinda, and she's telling you about her 33 years, as she is going to do today. So welcome to the show, Melinda. Thank you very much, Dr. Carroll, and thank you for inviting me to your couch. You're welcome. And I, I also thank you for the accolades that you just, uh, said. <laughs> Well, yes, I really well, um, you know, it, it, it's funny. It's one of the books that, it's a book that if um, if a high school student, you know, I mean, someone who might um, not be thrilled to read, read Shakespeare, the kind of students you taught, <laughs> um, I could see them starting to read this and not being able to put it down because it's written in that kind of a, uh, conversational, attention-grabbing, you know, very, very intimate kind of way. Thank you very much. So let's start, you know, being on my couch and all. Um, what I do is uh, I won't, uh, well, I start in childhood, of course, uh, being a psychiatrist. And um, I'd like to start before you were a teacher and before this memoir, um, start, you started taking notes for this memoir, uh, to where, what made you grow up to decide to become a teacher in the first place? Okay, I had a very happy childhood. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, you know, writers very often don't. Right. And that, that's their uh, raison d'etre for, for writing. But um, I spent a lot of time, uh, let's say, in junior high school. Um, I expended a great deal of energy poking fun at teachers. And when I had a good teacher, I was good in English. So I, I 
started liking one English teacher when I was a junior in uh, in high school. But before that, in, in uh, junior high school, I just knew the good teachers from the bad teachers. And uh, we had a lot of stories uh, involved with a French teacher. I wrote about it in the beginning of the book. Uh, she w- she uh, she really. Uh, the, the the section is called "The Only Thing We Have to Fear Is the French Teacher Herself," and really that may be uh, may have contributed to my wanting to become a teacher because I felt like after having her uh, that uh, I would have to write all I would like to write all those wrongs. Mm-hmm. She, so I was bristling from a teacher. Uh, we called her Granny Canny. Her name was Miss Canny. She was very old. Of course, uh, she may have been 55 in those days, and uh, <laughs> I retired at 55, but she really looked like a, an old lady. And, um, you know, it could have turned us off to school, could have turned me off to school, but it didn't. It inspired me to try to correct that, and I chose that option. And well, I made sure that fear never factored into my own classrooms, although I wish in New York City that I had the power to instill some <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Well, now, were there any teachers in your family? Uh, not that I know of, no. Mm-hmm. And um, how did your parents, was that something that they encouraged you to do? or? Well, no, actually, I, well, my mother, yes. Yeah, my mother always said, teaching is a great career because you can always go back to it. Hmm. And all I could think of was that when I, when I was trying to get my first teaching job, and there was a glut of teachers because of the Vietnam War, and so many young men decided to try to beat the draft by becoming teachers. So when I tried to get a job teaching high school English, there, there was really nothing to be found. And I kept saying, uh, a career to go back to. How could I go back <laughs> to something that I, don't, I can't even start it? <laughs> so now I did have an English teacher uh, in high school in New York City who was very irreverent in the classroom, and she made it so much fun. Hmm. And I traveled to school on the subway, New York subways at that time. And I just remember uh, going home and reliving the scenes from English class that day and enjoying the literature we were reading. And I, I, my, my inner dialogue was kind of set in motion around that time. And that was, uh, should I give you the year? You can. It was 1966, before I even went to college. And uh, a lifetime later, uh, here I am retired from 33 and a half years of teaching. Well, now, um, wait, you stopped me at, at, at trained subway. Well, first of all, um, just for those of you listeners who haven't heard me talk about this before or don't know, I'm from New York, and of course that was, that was uh, I, wanted to see, I wanted to see what someone who um, had spent 33 years in a school system that I had spent some time in, not 33 years, um, had to say, and especially what I'm interested in, and we'll get to this, is the evolution of kids from what they were like at the beginning of the 33 years and what they were like at the end. But um, what you were saying that you took a, the subway to high school. What high school did you well, go to? Well, I went to, I went to a private school uh, for two years of high school. Um, I, want, I wanted desperately to go to a certain uh, city high school, but it was so overcrowded and the school that I that I wound up in, my parents weren't too pleased with. So, um, I mean, I could tell you the actual story. Yes, yes. I went to summer school. I had failed um, geometry. <laughs> Ge- we had regents exams. Uh, I don't know if people in California know what regents exams are, but in order to uh, obtain a high school diploma, uh, a student has to pass these New York State exams. 
and they're they're less difficult now. They are watered down somewhat as compared to what we took. Mm-hmm. But uh, you had to take Regents in order to graduate, and if you failed it, you took it again. So I went to summer school so I could take my Regents again, and I went to this private school. My parents became enamored of the school, and that's where I wound up. Well, what was it? Uh, what, what was, what the, was name the name of it? of it? Sorry? What was the name of the private school? Oh, it was called Rhodes. Uh-huh. Rhodes School in New York City. It was in a beautiful area of the uh, east side of Manhattan, so I got great exposure to the city, and it was really a very sophisticated uh, way to spend two years of high school. Mm-hmm. Right off Fifth Avenue. So we're, now, we're and the nice one that you had wanted Central to go Park to was, was uh, a few blocks away. Was Hunter? Hunter College is uh, up on uh, Lexington oh, well, Avenue. Right. Well, um, well, oh, well, that's right. Um, college, yes, I forgot that was college. But Hunter had a high school. I thought so. That's what I was thinking. Yes, you had to be very smart to get into Hunter High School. Right. And uh, it was one of the specialized schools. Right. Well, now, that's one of the things I want to ask you. The, the schools that you, um, you spent 25 years at Richmond Hill High School, which was um, in Queens, Queens, New York. And um, eight years at William H. Maxwell, an all-girls vocational high school in Brooklyn. Yes. And both of these schools were in relatively um, poor or middle-class areas. Well, the, the East New York... Brooklyn School, the first school, Maxwell, was definitely uh, a, a um, disadvantaged, uh, the kids of disadvantaged. It was, it was really a, a low-income area, you know, known as the ghetto. Today they call it the hood. <laughs> okay, and then the vocational school wasn't That really... was the vocational school. Excuse me? That was the vocational school. Uh, okay, Maxwell. but then wait a minute, what about In the... Brooklyn. No, but then William H. Maxwell... William H. Maxwell was the vocational school. Yes. It was, yes. That was, that the, was one the one in Brooklyn. Right. And then the and following Richmond. one was in a more, when I started out, it was a more middle-class area uh, of Queens, and the demographics changed. The neighborhood is still relatively quiet, um, but the neighborhood has changed. So that's Very one of the things I wanted to ask you. What, um, I mean, I don't know how much control you had uh, in the New York public school system, but did you choose, I mean, you were in it for 33 years. Did you choose to be in these, um, you know, more challenging, shall we say, areas? Or, or was that just something that you don't really have a choice about? Well, at first I didn't have a choice, but I fell in love with Maxwell. That was the vocational all-girls high school. It was, I mean, I was taking my life in my hands every day going to that neighborhood. But once I got into the sanctuary of the school, everything was fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed myself, and I and I and my my uh, my teaching career was crafted in there. I learned quite a bit that prepared me for my next job. And then the next the next school was really greener pastures compared to uh, the Brooklyn neighborhood. Uh-huh. So, and I I chose to stay there. And um, I mean, I was kidding around. I said uh, some people would say I need a shrink to have taught in New York City for 30 years. <laughs> but I say, oh, contraire, it was a great ride. It was well, a great ride. you know, you certainly, um, certainly through these different stories uh, about your experiences and the students, um, you do have, you maintained, you have, <laughs> to this date apparently, you have maintained this very positive, upbeat, dedicated view of teaching um, and what you were able to accomplish, which seems to be amazing with some of these personal stories that I want to get into. But like, how did you, um, 
how did you, you know, there are many teachers who, like just, just what you said, there are many teachers who, especially if they are in more difficult areas, um, get burnt out. How did yeah, you they manage would have, to there do are, There are many teachers that would have jumped off a building rather than teach in the neighborhoods where I worked. Yes. And I know some people, uh, there's a section called Melinda Ehrlich versus the Board of Education. It was how I had to fight to transfer after I was mugged in Brooklyn. And uh, I, I had to fight the Board of Ed to, to get transferred to this school named Richmond Hill High School. And uh, so, I mean, I know people that would never put up with this kind of bureaucracy. In fact, I have one friend who I think she taught for three days, and then she, she, called it a, you know, she called it a day, and that was it. She never went back to teaching. She's also still working, and she says, boy, if I had stayed in teaching, I would have been retired with a pension now, too. Mm-hmm. So, so what is your secret? There was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I I love teenagers. I did. I, I always said that that um, when I stopped enjoying being around the teenagers, I, it would be time to retire. Hmm. And um, basically, I still like them. But uh, and in fact, I'm in touch with so many of my former kids now. I tell them they're older than I am now. They're in their 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I, I went to a, um, a reunion of the Maxwell girls last June, and they've turned into to wonderful, responsible, accomplished, educated women. And back then they were total ditzes. They were just, they were, all they were interested in was their hair and their nails, but they could be because it was a vocational school where they studied cosmetology. Hmm. So English was regarded as a minor in that school, but I got some great stories from it. Well, yes, and that's what we want to hear about when when we come back. Okay. Um, I also want to ask you about how kids have changed. I mean, I know in some level uh, you will probably agree that they haven't changed. I mean, deep down they haven't changed. It's the world around them that's changed that made them have to, uh, I knew that was going to come, okay. <laughs> that made them have to uh, adapt in ways that, that, you know, weren't as innocent uh, 33 years ago plus. When we come back, um, we do need to take a break now. My guest is Melinda Ehrlich. Her book is called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum, which I think is a uh, throwback to these more innocent times. Now it's take out your, <laughs> take off your, I don't know. And, and no, it's put, now it's pull up, pull up your pants. Yes, yeah, pull up your pants and take off your gun. Take off your hoodie, <laughs> take off your hoodie and pull up your pants. Right. When we come, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and when we come back, we'll hear more about this New York City teacher's memoir. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll free right now. One eight six six four seven two five seven eight seven. And ask our All Star team to answer your question. That's one eight six six four seven two fifty seven eighty seven. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about a New York City teacher's memoir called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum by Melinda Ehrlich. It's a new new book that's just come out, and it unlocks the door to kids' hearts. And now we're going to talk about uh, these kids' hearts and whether they have changed from um, 30, the beginning of, of your 33-year career uh, to the end of it. What do you think? I think it's hard to generalize. Um, I taught very impoverished students in Brooklyn, and some of them were, uh, they, didn't, they didn't have much of an education ethic at home. But the ones that did, their parents made them come to the school, and these kids were the first to graduate from high school with a trade. So that was very important. So they had, these kids developed a work, a work ethic on their own uh-huh. um, against all odds of their, of their families. And then I came to Richmond Hill, which was a more of a middle-class neighborhood, and there were kids that were so apathetic. They, were, they sat in class like dead wood, and I was shocked by that. In fact, I wrote a letter uh, to a friend of mine. It was 1982, and I had written a letter to a friend of mine who was an English teacher in Alaska. Hmm. Uh, she, she and I grew up together in, in Queens, New York, and she wound up uh, marrying a guy she met in college, and they moved up to Alaska. And I wrote a letter, and I was appalled by, by how these kids uh, could possibly be so apathetic at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you want me to read the letter. But, well, go ahead. You can. Um, yeah. Let me see if I can find it. Well, uh, well, how did that compare? What did she say? How did that compare with what she was finding in Alaska? Well, we didn't really talk about that, but I just uh, remember being so impressed uh, uh, negatively impressed, uh, really appalled by the seniors that I was teaching at this at this so-called middle-class school in Queens, and uh, they they would have two chances to to uh, to, to take uh, exams, uh, statewide exams. They instead of giving it in June, they would give it in January in case they failed it, and um, homework was regarded as a suggestion. <laughs> many of these kids. Well, and it must have been really interesting for you coming from um, the lower class school, the vocational school, yeah. where, um, where, where, I mean, you must have been thinking these kids don't realize how good they have it compared to what it could be. Right, right. And 
then I, you know, then the classes were heterogeneous at that time, and they, that made it tough because the slower kids were lost in the shuffle and the bright ones were able to shine. And so it, it really brought down the quality of education because some mm-hmm. kids sat there like dead wood, and the, the smart kids would, would stop doing their work because they would say, why bust my chops? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so they, they would become more apathetic. So how were they different? from the beginning to the end of your teaching career, or if, the, if you think they were? I don't or... know that they really were. I think you had a, a little of everything. We had, we had more truants, I noticed, at the end. I mean, I would have a class of 34. 34 was the number of kids you could have in a class. They couldn't put more. That was against the union contract. So 34 was a magic number. Sometimes if I had 34, sometimes I would have maybe 22 that would show up, hmm. and then they would be phantom students. They made it easier for me to teach, but then when the phantoms would come back, then, you know, they're completely lost, and it doesn't make for a good teaching at learning atmosphere. So we had, we had a lot of uh, truancy in, in, my, in, in the school. In fact, uh, many, many high schools are being shut down now, well, supposedly were being shut down uh, and reopened uh, with new names mm-hmm. uh, this year. Why is some that? schools were low-performing low schools. Huh. Because they have what so about, many, they, um, they look at the graduation what, rate. What? They look at the graduation rate, and they want to know if kids can graduate in four years, and that's how they rate the schools. But if kids are truants, and they spend two years as truants, and then they suddenly uh, wake up and say, oh, you know, I need a high school diploma. I'm coming back. So then it takes them six years to graduate. Mm. And now the school is ranked as a lower-performing school. So they just changed the name. That that's. <laughs> I know. It's like what's in a name. I, I saw a cartoon. This really made me laugh. There was a cartoon in the United Federation of Teachers newspaper, and it said it said something like, uh, "Oh, they're changing the school's name. Now the kids can really learn." <laughs> <laughs> what about you were in the schools at nine eleven, right? Yes, I was. What impact did that have? Well, 9-11 uh, changed the way, the way the world... Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the way everybody looks at the world now, I mean... Right. I uh, wrote a book, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted, so yes. But I oh, mean, okay. in, the, in, the, in the classroom, what did you have to deal with? How did you work with the kids in the classroom after 9-11? Okay. I was there on 9-11. I was driving uh, to school when the first uh, tower dro- uh, fell. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, I, I wrote about that in the book as well, um, September 11th. I was on late time schedule, which means 10 o'clock to 4.20, and my first class met at 10.30 in the morning. By the time it was over, 40 minutes later, the second tower of the World Trade Center had collapsed, and there were only sketchy details at the time. So when I walked into school that morning, the staff was moving zombie-like, but the kids were in class. The staff was numb. Mm-hmm. Because they had heard what was going on, the kids were in the classes in the morning, and they didn't—they didn't know what was going on. And I, what did I teach that day? I, I stuck to business as usual with my first class because none of the kids had heard yet, and uh-huh. I wasn't informed enough to deal with earth-shattering news at that point. But how I was able to remain on task, I guess, is stranger than fiction. And it really—it really was because I was. This is a really amazing story. The book I was teaching that week was a novel called The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. And th- this was the beginning of the term. And 
the very next time I met with the class, two days later, they closed the schools on September 12th. But on September 13th, a kid said to me, are you sure you're not a witch? Hmm. I said, and I understood because the book deals with the random death of five people who plunged from a bridge when it suddenly and very unexpectedly collapsed. It was a strong bridge. It was like the finest bridge in all of Peru. Hmm. And it was unthinkable that it should, that it should break and kill people. Huh. So kind of like the Twin Towers that weren't supposed to ever collapse. Yes. And we were studying that at the time. And I, I really used that book um, to my teaching advantage uh, hmm. because in the weeks that followed, uh, it really hit home because the New York Times published portraits of grief. Um, every, they, they took every, one by one, every uh, person who died in, that, uh, in the World Trade Center, and they, gave, they wrote them up, like a little bio of them, portraits of grief. Hmm. And everybody in my class seemed to know somebody. Everybody in New York seemed to know someone. Uh-huh. So um, it was tough. And then, and then they had uh, one of the teachers uh, reading a poem by Maya Angelou mm-hmm. to try to... Uh, it was called On the Pulse of Mourning over the Public Address System. Mm. And her soothing voice, she was a, a real voiceover person to begin with. And they thought that her soothing voice would help the school in the healing process. Uh-huh. And, but, you know, we kept hearing the, the world will never be the same. And it was a hard concept at that time to think about over a decade ago, but it's really proven to be true, and, and then some. Yes, absolutely. And then they started putting flags. When we were kids, we had to pledge to the flag yes. all the time, but in later years, I noticed that the high schools didn't have flags in the room, and we did not have to pledge. They used to mm. put it over the uh, PA system. Mm. After 9-11, suddenly every room was furnished with an American flag, mm. and they piped in, and now everybody pledged. Yes, you know, that's one of the things that I noticed. Um, I mean, I talk about in my book, and in general, um, I talk about how we're all in denial. And But one of the things that um, that sort of wakes people up um, is, like, for example, being at a, at a public event where you're seeing the Star Spangled Banner or seeing the flag. I mean, I think people now, it, people were sort of nonchalant about it before, um, but now it has taken on a greater meaning. I was, for July 4th, I was at the Hollywood Bowl watching Barry Manilow, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they always sing the Star-Spangled Banner beforehand, and, uh, and of course, July 4th, you know, uh, being the holiday it is. Um, but they, and they ask um, the people who are in the, who were in the services uh, to stand up, like they play the music from each, the, you know, the Army and the Navy and all the different certain military uh, branches, and they play their theme songs, and then ask the people to stand up in the audience who were uh, involved in that in that branch. Oh. And it's very moving. Yes, it um, is. But it's on the whole. I mean, that and when people uh, go to the airport and have to stand in long lines, those are the only times that people pay attention to you know and remember. Oh yes, terrorism. Even yeah. though that we're we're being bombarded all the time, and and. Uh, and have cognitive dissonance. We hear it on the news, but we totally wipe it out of out of our minds. But we're going to get astray. But that was really fascinating to hear what what happened in the schools. Let's talk about some of your. I want to talk about some of your biggest successes and some of your biggest. Um, well, I don't want to call them failures, but some of the kids who didn't turn out as well as as you would have liked. Well, it turns out that um, one of them really could have been a disaster. Uh, the one named Tina. But when, when I met, Tina was an angel dust head 
and she 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 was a drug abuser and an alcohol abuser. Her father was an alcoholic, but I decided to take this kid under my wing because the first day I saw her in class, I was teaching a poem um, by by Robert by Amy Lowell called Patterns, and the whole class was involved. And she was sitting there; she looked like she was wrapped in it, and. At the end of the period, she came up to me and she said, uh, "Oh, by the way, Miss Ehrlich, I, I didn't hear a word you said all period, and I couldn't believe it because this kid looked like she was so involved in, in just listening and nodding and everything else." And she said, "Because Jim Morrison was talking to me, and Jim Morrison of the Doors, I had his picture hanging up in the classroom with other Rolling Stone magazine posters." magazine covers. Mm-hmm. And so she said, Jim Morrison was talking to me. He was dead at the time, of course. And, and did you yeah. wonder if she was, uh, I mean, was she saying that, that she was hearing his voice, that she was hallucinating? Yes. that's what, Well, she was telling me. She said, yes, yeah, she wasn't listening to me. Jim Morrison was talking to her. I mean, I her. didn't know if you meant that she was talking to her literally or just, you know, she was enamored by his picture. Well, I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, I, I'm not really sure, but then when I got to know her, I realized that she was so involved with with uh, drugs, but I tried to help her because she was really a smart kid, and she was a sweet kid. She was a very giving sort of, you know, young lady, And but I realized that um, she was overstepping her her bounds. My mother used to say, familiarity breeds contempt, yes, and we're gonna, I got we're... too close with this kid. We, we we need to stop right now, but okay. we will come back with the story of Tina because that's okay. a I, when and I want you to read her letter, the letter that she sent to okay, you. It's, sure. it, it made me uh, uh, cry. Oh, okay. it's very moving. Okay, um, sure. my guest is Melinda Ehrlich. Her book is called "Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum." We're talking about 33 years in the New York City public school system, and uh, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, we're talking today with Melinda Ehrlich. Her book is called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum. It's a teacher's memoir. Uh, so while you were being a teacher, I mean, did you have it in mind the whole time that you were going to write a book when you retired? Is that why you were keeping notes or what? Absolutely. I took notes from the day I walked into the classroom as a student teacher. Everybody, I would come home with stories from student teaching, and everybody said, oh, you should write a book. And I knew it. That I knew I would. I, one day I would. Everybody says, oh, I can write a book. The man in the stationery store in my neighborhood said, oh, I could write a book from all the people that I meet over the counter here. And, uh, you know, my physical therapist says the same thing. I could write about all my clients. But I, I knew I, I was an English major, and, and uh, writing was something that I loved to do. And I decided that I would put this together, but, I, of course, I didn't have time. As Frank McCourt said about his book, Teacher Man, when somebody said, what took you so long to write it after Angela's Ashes? Mm-hmm. Or maybe before, I don't know, he wrote that after Angela's Ashes, but somebody said, what took you so long to write the book? And he says, I was teaching. That's what mm-hmm. took me so long. Mm-hmm. So this book was uh, basically uh, in the gestation process for over 30 years, but when I retired um, seven years ago, six years, this took the better part of six years to write. Mm. From my copious notes, I, I had notebooks, scraps of paper. I, I kept a lot of them. I still have them. So I kept the anecdotes, and I also kept many of the, um, right, the student uh, papers, hmm. mostly the good ones. But well, also and you some also kept in touch with your students, some of them. Yes. yes. How did, I mean, that's unusual. How did that come about? Um. I was always, I, I liked the kids, and I, I never went, I never, you know, over, went over the a lo, the line. I, I didn't, you know, go over the barrier where, you, you know, make to make it uh, like an illegal thing. Like when I, uh, when I was helping this kid, Tina, uh, to prevent her from unraveling, I made a home visit. I met her, I met her mother. It was called a family intervention at the time. I, I mean, I didn't have my own children. So when school was over at 3 o'clock, I didn't have to rush home to help my kid with homework or pick them up at school or take them to soccer. Mm-hmm. So I really um, invested a lot of time in some students. And then in later years, I did the school newspaper. I was the faculty advisor of that, and that took hours mm. of time. But I really enjoyed it, and I had kids working with me. And so that was my life. And, of course, the burnout teachers would say from the beginning, you know, uh, are they paying you extra for all this time? <laughs> uh, you know, don't be. A, they say don't be a schmuck. <laughs> but I, as I said in the book, I was a career schmuck. I, I just I I felt that in order to be a good teacher, you really have to burn the midnight oil to to uh, to come up with new fresh ideas for the next day. Well, yeah, it was really challenging, and of course, you know, you all the stories in the book talk about that. So tell us more about Tina. Okay, so uh, Tina was was going to uh, drop out. I saw that she was failing her classes, and and she, and she was about to drop out. I I remember giving her a cartoon as one of the things to um, to, to uh, well to entertain her, but also to make a point to drive a point home. It was a um, a Kleban. I don't know if you're familiar with Kleban cartoons. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of 
cats, black and white um, pen and ink drawings of cats. Uh-huh. But he was very popular. And I gave her, uh, this was not a cat, but the same, the same cartoonist did a, an assembly line of people working, uh, salting crackers on an assembly line. And it said, uh, and I gave her that. And I said, if you drop out, you can always be a cracker salter. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, she remembers that. She wanted me to put it in the book, but I couldn't get permission. Mm. I tried to get permission to put it in the book, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't you know, you need this. Well, go ahead. Her. So, but she was so she was heading down the wrong road. Right. Then. Right. So uh, anyway, so I I appealed to have her return. Do you, do you want me to read the reasons that I told her to return, or the letter? Well, well, tell us about. I mean, what when you, when she, what grade was she in when you were teaching she, her? I think she was a junior. Okay, and and when she was no longer the last time you saw her in your in your class, what did you what did you think was going to become of her? Uh, I knew that she was probably just going to never get a diploma, and work in a video. She was working in a video store, but she was selling possessions of hers to get money for drugs. Mm. I saw that, and I talked to her. I, I even talked to her uh, boss, and he knew the situation, and I said maybe you shouldn't pay her. Because <laughs> look what she's doing with this money, huh? Well, uh, that must have end. Yeah. Right, right. So that's that's what was going on, and I and you had invested, that... even though you had invested lots of time and energy and extra special care, and then uh, and go ahead. And she was calling you, and you had to change your number. Go tell us right. about she that. Right, she would she would uh, she'd call my home. Um, and if I wasn't home, she'd talk to my husband. And he, he, was, a, he was a saint. Every, I mean, he was a wonderful, he is a wonderful man. And so he, she would chew his ear off. And then I, I realized this is getting to be too much. And now we, so we unpublished our number. Mm-hmm. To this day, she does not have my new number. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, she is in touch with me on Facebook and uh, email. Uh-huh. But that's about it. That's the limit at this point, even though she's, you know, an upstanding uh, well, tell member us what of society happened. So, right now. So after you, she left your class, and then you didn't see her for how long? Uh, let's see. She, uh, let's see. She she called she called me at school. Uh, years, years later, later, let's just say that, and she w- invited you out to dinner. Yes. She, oh, that's what she did. She called me at school. And I hadn't seen her, and uh, let's see, oh, 15 years later. Okay, 15 yeah. 15 years I hadn't seen her. So she, 1999, she called the English office at, at Richmond Hill High School trying to contact me, and I said, oh, God. But I did return her call because I, I was curious. That was it. It was a phone call from school, and uh, I, I couldn't imagine what she wanted to tell me, but she said, I'm no longer a druggie. I don't drink at all or do any drugs at all. I'm clean. She said she was clean for about 12 years. I thought that was wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used the word amazing. I don't like the word amazing, but I said, boy, that, that news is truly amazing. <laughs> and uh, I think it's an overused mm-hmm. word. Amazing. So uh, I was caught off guard. She asked me if I would like to have dinner with her at a Japanese restaurant. She knew that I love sushi. So that became the great equalizer. And normally I would order a a light beer with sushi, but I didn't because I saw that she really wasn't drinking at Mm -hmm. all. So, uh, 
Anyway, she told me that she's got a job at, uh, as an EMS uh, worker, with the, and she's also working for the Fire Department of New York, FDNY. And she said things like, uh, anyone who I go to help is lucky that I'm on the truck. And I believe that because recovering addicts often go above and beyond to try to help others. Mm-hmm. And I, I do know that about you know the drug personality when the, once they uh, overcome 15. it. Mm-hmm. And then she paid for the she paid for the meal and she said this is for all the times you took me out and made sure I was okay and uh, I I couldn't help her in those days though it was beyond it was beyond she was beyond my help. Well, I mean, but obviously, but wasn't that the big surprise? Yeah. I mean, that was the yes. kind of the point that yes. that even though you were, you know, you had put in all this extra effort with her after school and and everything, and it didn't seem, she didn't seem to have a good future ahead of her, and yet obviously all of that work and energy and caring that you put in did turn her life around. Right. So she then she wrote me an email. She asked me for my phone number, and I said no. I uh, and she said I wrote, I wrote in my book. It wasn't that I didn't trust her, but I didn't trust her. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she said, "May I have your email?" So I gave her my email. I broke down, and then she writes the letter two days later. Thanks for putting so much into me for taking a chance. Don't ever let being a teacher stop you from sometimes going the extra mile. Just think of me when you see someone you want to help, and that little voice tells you no. You made such a difference in my life. If it wasn't for you, my parents would not have a daughter, my nieces and nephews wouldn't have their favorite aunt, and the people I encounter in my job wouldn't have that person who's willing to go out of her way to do more for them. Wonder where I got that from. Oh, and Kenny, that's my husband, I can't say thank you to you more than, I can't thank you more than enough. I know I put you through a lot too, and you are one lucky man to have a wife like Melinda. Some people don't always get to see the outcome of their efforts, and if it wasn't for Melinda, I would be dead today. I don't think I would ever have made it out of high school. Hopefully we can all get together someday. Keep in touch, Tina. Now, that's, that, that was just such a moving letter. I mean, because... It was. I have it framed. <laughs> yes, because, because... And I'm sure, um, you know, there are, there are other people that you do know that you made a positive change in their life uh, with, and then there are, I'm sure there are scores of others who never got back in touch or you never ran into or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. who, who, I mean, it, it, looking back on the 33 years, that's presumably what made it all worth it. Right. I mean, I did go to another uh, reunion, a 10-year high school reunion uh, for, in, in 1990 for kids from the 80s, and there was a boy that was a horrible kid. He made my life miserable. I mean, I, I would be cursing on my way home, couldn't wait to call his parent. I threw him out. He was totally disrespectful. And I really never cared if I ever saw him again. <laughs> and at that reunion, he came up to me and says, Hey, Miss Ehrlich, remember me, Michael? I didn't turn out so bad, did I? You threw me out, but I want to apologize now. Hmm. And, and what did uh, he become? That, that, really, that actually was very moving and brought a tear to my eye. Absolutely. Because he was, he was uh, turns out he was okay. You know what it is growing up? I mean, that sometimes that's all that, that you need. High school such a... Uh, dangerous age. Yes, and, Go and also because I mean, in in most of these cases, weren't you? I mean, so many of the kids had parents who weren't giving them that attention. Right, parents are not there for them. If they have two or three children, they go to open school night for the younger children. Once the kids hit high school, it seems to me that uh, there's there's very little parental. Uh, uh, 
what do you call it? Attention, uh, caring. They're not there for them. Mm-hmm. There's no parental involvement. That's what mm-hmm. I was thinking, parental involvement. And, but parents who do uh, have an education ethic at home, it makes all the difference. I think it does. Even if there's, the neighborhood is, there's instability in the neighborhood, um, I think that uh, it defines a kid's attitude and progress in school if there's, if there's home intervention. Yes, if parents show that they care about yes. the child's education. We need to take another break. Again, my guest is Melinda Ehrlich. She is the author of a new book called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about a New York City teacher's memoir that just came out called Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum. It is chocked full of um, incredible personal intimate stories of the students and of uh, Melinda's interaction with them, and and uh, uh, some of them are funny, some of them are sad, some of them are they're all inspirational one way or the other. And um, I was thinking during this last segment, if Melinda could, I want to ask you to um, talk about give some one or at least one example of um, or more of children who where it would have made such a significant difference if their parents. Um, what, it, what if their parents were different, if their parents were more involved. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, I was asking before about how, how whether kids are different now than 33 years ago or plus, plus. Um, and certainly one of the things that has changed is because there are more parents who are, we're, more families where they're divorced and or there are two parents working. I mean, it comes down to parents being less in the home when a child comes home from school and that making all the difference in the world. So tell us about that. And I was very shocked. Uh, parents would come to open school night and the, they would, I would say, uh, your son never does his work. He never does his homework. He's, uh, his attendance is spotty. And the, and the parent would say, well, he works. Now, huh. when we were growing up, 
I mean, if you were failing school, how, how could a parent allow a child to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I understand that they may need the money, but you can't have both. Right. So, I, I mean, these kids would tell me, oh, I was at work till 2.30 in the morning last night. I did my homework at work. Hmm. And my boss read Macbeth, too. <laughs> they were so shocked. Their boss read Macbeth when he was in high school. And, but, you know, um, if, and then I would say to myself, if the parents aren't saying anything and they're allowing these kids to work, then we don't have a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing. And on the other hand, we, we would have, I had a very funny story. Sometimes uh, the apple doesn't fall far. Um, I always wish that more parents would show up for open school night on the high school level. And, and one night, um, I, my, my dreams started to come true and more and more kids started to have um, failing grades. In the, hmm. in the later years, so it turns out that more parents who were showing up were the parents I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was only the really nice parents that would show up. Mm-hmm. But one one day, a very sweet boy, uh, his name was Ganesh. He was from Guyana, and he he led his parents in to meet me. And he he was a student in my literature to film class. Hmm. And so I said, his mother's name was Mrs. Ali, and I, and she said, "How is Ganesh doing in your class?" And I said, oh, he's doing very well. He submits all of his assignments. He seems to appreciate the books and the movies that we're studying. He volunteers to read parts in all the screenplays aloud, but there is one problem. And his mother's interrupting, problem? What problem? (laughs) And, And I said, Ganesh mispronounces the word film. He says, flim. And Mrs. Alley goes, flim? And then she's glaring at Ganesh, and she said, you say flim? And then I said, yes, he just can't seem to get it right. I've repeatedly taught him the correct pronunciation. I tell him that it's film. Mrs. Alley's upset. How you say flim? It's flim. (laughs) (laughs) Think before you say flim. (laughs) So this is an example of a boy whose parents are involved. (laughs) But, you know, we had... Yeah. Had mo- most of the the kids, the problems uh, had parents that were not involved at all, and with yeah. the zero tolerance um, in place now after nine eleven, and basically after Columbine and those other copycat school shootings, the schools um, embraced a zero tolerance policy. A kid can't have a water pistol; he gets suspended and no questions asked, uh, and it seems very harsh, but. Sometimes we were saving the kids from themselves because if a kid's playing with a fake gun, mm-hmm. who's to know that it's a fake gun? Right. Yes, so. that, that is, of course, another change. Um, I was, you know, spit out your gum was a problem at the beginning. And, uh, you know, now it is more um, take, you know, don't take a gun to school, spit out your gun. Um, Spit out your gun. Yeah, yeah, gun instead of gum, right? <laughs> Take off your hand. So, your um, I don't so, think. I mean, I didn't. I didn't see uh, that many uh, weapons in my school, honestly. Um, but were kids it, more frightened, uh, you know, of of being in school, or more well, frightened about me, their We didn't. We didn't have a metal detector in my building, and mm-hmm. uh, some schools did. But this, in the scheme of things, Richmond Hill High School was a calm school compared to many of the others in New York City. And when I would say to the kids uh, something about metal detectors, we don't have metal detectors, and they go, we should. We should have them because you don't know how many kids come here strapped, hmm. meaning armed. Yeah. Huh. And, I, and they go, Miss Earl, you don't want to know. Huh. So, you know, there was so much that we didn't know. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, needless to say, um, when before that was a problem, before kids thought of bringing guns to school or any kind of weapon, um, and it was more about <laughs> spit out your gum, um, there was less distraction. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, yes, there were certainly problems, as you write about, you know, with with learning. Um, mainly, it's, I mean, it's still today, it's just the problems have gotten worse, but... Um, there were a lot of wise guys. I mean, the wise, but the wise guys never scared me. I could, I could uh, deal with them right. by giving it right back to them. Right, right. You know, but uh, and I have a chapter on that, uh, giving giving students a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> but um, when, when there was hostility, then that that to me was a problem. I mean, if a kid if a kid was wearing a hat and I said, "Please take off your hat," and there was hostility, then I would I would have a problem. I would definitely uh, call the parent or or speak to the guidance counselor. Well, and did you get responses like, uh, you know, were the parents concerned, or did you have parents who were kind of irritated at you for bothering them? No, with, no they with always it. thanked me. I don't think I ever had a problem with parents saying, uh, don't call me. And I many times did see improvement because I took the time to call. Yes. And sometimes kids would come in the next day and go, why'd you call my mother? <laughs> but, <laughs> so I don't know if I was, um, you know, a pain in the neck with them, or or uh, or I just was a teacher who cared. I think that's what it was. I, I really cared, and I also, to save my own face, really, I would not let a kid uh, get away with being uh, disrespectful without mm-hmm. making a phone call that night. Mm-hmm. And and, mm-hmm. and in the old days, I didn't want my phone number to be traced, so I would go down to the local supermarket and call hmm. from a payphone. Hmm. Because, but I wouldn't let it go because I felt that. If I didn't make an intervention, that kid's going to come back the next day and have a party. Yes, absolutely. And continue it, and it would escalate, and that was not good for me and my ego. Well, and you got their parent to, you know, suddenly start paying attention to them, that, uh, you know, that a teacher's calling, and and so really, even though they were saying, what'd you call my mother for, um, they were really happy about it because it showed you cared, and then the parent got involved, and at least temporarily, and showed that they cared, yeah. So it really did have a positive, uh, you know, part, the, the problem that I'm sure you, you experienced was, uh, and, and it is worse, is that um, kids are coming to school with so much more baggage than they did 33-plus years ago. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, with as I was saying, divorces and with parents who are alcoholics. I mean, I know Tina and her mother, I mean, her parents, Yep. Know, had alcoholism and drugs and so on, but right, right. but there were, are a lot more kids who are coming to school having to deal with parents who are on drugs or alcohol or addicted to whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or are just not at home or are home but are so depressed it's as if they're not at home. Exactly. Um, and it, so it makes learning. I mean, you're trying to teach them <laughs> about Macbeth, and um, you know they're thinking about not how how they're going to avoid being sexually abused that afternoon. Right, and, and we had. I mean, I always. No matter what, I always taught Shakespeare because I felt that nobody should graduate from high school without yeah. knowing at least two plays from Shakespeare and maybe a couple of sonnets. And we had a teacher in my department who just gave up. He would teach short stories because he said, I'm not going to have the same kids in the class the next day anyway, so uh, why teach a novel or a play? <laughs> he would teach mm. a short story. And I said, but you're an English teacher. You need to be teaching Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And then he said, why should I teach Shakespeare to the future Budweiser truck drivers of America? That was a burnout. That was a burnout, yes, teacher. Yes, absolutely. Well, God, I, I'm, I'm really, um, 
I, if everybody had teachers like you, we would be a lot better off. The educational system. I want to make sure everybody gets Thank your you website. Maybe first I should of go all, back. It's MelindaErlich.com. Ehrlich is spelled E H R L I C H. MelindaErlich.com. The name of the book is Take Off Your Hat and Spit Out Your Gum. We've only scratched the surface. Um, it is it is a must if you uh, for anybody. But if you if you're a teacher or you have a kid in school. Um, and you want to know what's what will make the difference in their education, or you just are somebody who wants to read um, and entertaining, very yes, and very poignant kinds of stories and, and well-written stories. So thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you for being this incredibly uh, wonderful teacher for 33 years in oh, New York. My pleasure. And, my pleasure. Uh, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And oh, I keep forgetting. Now I'm doing Twitter. So I'm supposed to say <laughs> to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Carol MD, Dr. Carol with an E, MD. All right. Thank you all. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 